You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove ancient medical wisdom with modern science. In this month's podcast, I'm delighted to have as our guest, Dr. Suha Searsagar, who is uh, one of the one of the world-renowned Ayurvedic practitioners, Ayurvedic doctors here in this country. Um, and let me give you a read his bio for you quickly. Um, he's a world-renowned Ayurvedic physician, educator from India, director of the Ayurvedic Healing and Integrative Wellness Center in Northern California, author of The Hot Belly Diet. He holds a BA in Ayurvedic medicine and completed a three-year residency as an MD uh, doctor of Ayurveda, internal medicine, with a gold medal at the prestigious Pune University. He's an advisor and consultant to the Chopra Center and faculty member of several Ayurvedic institutions. Um, I, I have known Dr. Suhas for, for many years. Uh, we teach at many of the same institutions we don't cross paths very much, but we hear about each other because the students that I teach love him wherever I go. So I feel deeply honored to have him here with us talking about his new book, which is a topic that I am deeply passionate about. And his new book is called Change Your Schedule, Change Your Life, which comes out uh, in um, January, right? It's January, right? January 20th, 2018. So, so by the time you hear this podcast, that book will be out. So you should run out and get the book. And it's all about circadian medicine. As you know, I'm a huge fan. I've written over 30, 40 articles on circadian medicine, connecting ancient wisdom with modern science. And you can't connect ancient wisdom with modern science unless you talk about circadian medicine. So let's dive right in. Dr. Suhas, tell me, um, you know, in a nutshell, what this book is about. Well, thank you, John. And as I said, it's my great honor and pleasure to be on your show. And as you have been uh, trying to talk about Ayurveda from a Western medical perspective, I think you, we both agree that everything that we are seeing nowadays is revalidating and reestablishing this connection. So uh, the premise of writing this book specifically, we are both clinicians and in our clinical practice, we are seeing so many people who are probably doing the right things at the wrong times constantly. And the lives have become so busy that even though they want to meditate, even though they want to exercise, even if they want to cook for themselves, they have no time for themselves. And slowly their schedules takes over uh, the priority and their work looms larger than life. And then slowly they become more and more disconnected with their bodily rhythms and functions. And I find that as the seed of illness where many of the diseases, they are not sleeping well, they're not going to bed at a proper time, they're not eating the right food at the right time, they're not exercising at the right time, and they are trying their best. I don't blame them, but I think these busy schedules is literally killing them slowly. And what is happening is I practice in Bay Area in the Silicon Valley, an average person works 13, 14, 15 hours a day. And when this becomes so busy and hectic, then all the bodily functions become disrupted. And one of the key principles of Ayurveda is to align your day-to-day -day activity with the movement of dark and uh, the sunlight and, and, and the night itself. So you start the day at the dawn, you end the day in dusk, uh, dusk, and you align all your activities around that time. So when I don't see people doing some of those things, I see that this is the crux of the issue. And that was the very premise of writing this book. And what I see that when we started making these minor corrections, giving them the food at the right time, exercising at the right time, helping them go to bed at a proper time, syncing their day-to-day -day activities, what they are doing with what they should be doing in the first place, I think many of these sim uh, symptoms, what they were having, uh, slowly started fading away. And that was the main issue about writing the book. And as I started diving more and more about the latest scientific research, uh, I was fascinated how, how easily all these ancient Ayurvedic principles are being revalidated constantly. You know, it reminds me of uh, a story when I was uh, 27 years old, I was diagnosed with high blood pressure. 
And then very recently, the last two weeks, the uh, American Heart Association raised or lowered the levels for diagnosed with high blood pressures. Now it's 130 over 90. If you're over that, you're high, you have high blood pressure. It used to be 140 over 90. And uh, so they just lowered that. And I, and I recently just wrote an article that was about my personal experience. So here I went for my first Ayurveda consultation. It was 1987. I walked in and took my blood pressure and it was high, 135 over 95. I was 27 years old. And the and there was an Ayurvedic doctor came in, Indian doctor came in. He looked at me and he said, uh, "What do you eat for lunch?" And I said, "Well, I have a busy practice. My first year in practice, I have a big breakfast, a big supper, but I'm usually running behind at lunchtime when I eat on the run, gobble something, and finish my day. And I would always finish my day exhausted, like I was hit by a bus or a truck or something." And he looked at me and he said. Go home and have a nice, big, warm, cooked meal in the middle of your day. You'll never have high pressure, high blood pressure again. And I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, I want an Ayurvedic pill. Fix me. I don't want, don't tell me to go eat a big lunch and it'll fix my blood pressure. But I heard him loud and clear. I started doing that. I saw dramatic shifts in my own blood pressure. And I saw dramatic shifts in my patient. I actually did a study on it and showed that when that, when people stop in the middle of the day and they eat what we now know from circadian science shows that the body can digest in the middle of the day. And we also know in the afternoon, and you can talk more about this as my question to you, in the afternoon we know what we call it the vata time of day when the brain is saying, I want 80% of my fuel and I want it right now. And you had a salad in front of your computer or back then when I was 27, I ate a piece of chocolate and then crashed through the rest of the day to get through the day. That puts so much stress on your nervous system to finish the day that we're borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, we end the day with no gas in our tank. And however you are genetically wired to break down, you will break down and your blood pressure will go up. Today, my blood pressure now, uh, uh, mind-bogglingly, my blood pressure is 110, 115, 117 over 60, 70 or 75. It's dramatically changed simply by doing what you are talking about. And I spent the first 20 years of my practice literally teaching people how to live their life in sync with the natural cycles. It's Ayurvedic 101. So talk to me from your perspective about how that particular time of day, the middle of the day, how critical that is, and all the science about eating big lunches now is now available. This is Nobel Prize winning science. This year, the Nobel Prize won by, by, by for circadian medicine. But talk to me about those two different times of day, because when my practice, that 10 o'clock to two in the middle of the day and two to six time, is so critically important. Talk to me about what you know about those two times a day. I think I think the latest science, as you are saying, is eat late to gain some weight and sleep late to gain some weight. So what happens when you're not eating anything throughout the day and then you have a big dinner and then you sleep on top of that, your heart rate, pulse rate, respiratory rate, even the metabolic rate slows mm-hmm. down and the food stays into your system without being digested. And you wake up with that state of indigestion and then you think breakfast is the most important meal of the day and you put another truckload of food on top of that and you walk around feeling completely blocked and inflamed. You create vascular inflammation, you create congestion, your sinuses are blocked and you are barely waking up because you're feeling dull and heavy and you're running around all day long. And since the food is not properly digested, you don't really even feel the desire of having a big lunch in the middle of the day. And by the time you are exhausted and you're tired with your work, you again have that meal. So uh, you're not just one of them, John, 70% of the country takes their biggest calorie meal after three o'clock in the afternoon, 70% of the country. And this is a massive epidemic which affects their sleep. And everybody wakes up not being uh, completely able to digest their food. And they wake up dull, heavy, groggy, congested, and then they add, uh, massive doses of caffeine to get things going, which again disrupts your agony and then doesn't make you hungry at the right time. And then you kind of suppress and then rivers of caffeine are flowing through your system. So I think this is a fundamental disruption. So you take one wrong turn and you're taking many wrong turn thereafter. So, so I think you talked about, go ahead, yeah, finish up. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think that is, that is an important issue to, uh, to eat with, with the light. So when the sun is waking up in the morning, you have the light, sunlight is very tender. So you have a lighter breakfast. When the sun is prominent in the middle of the day, you have your biggest meal. Sun is the representation of 
agni, fire, liver in our body. So you have your biggest meal and then you are running around and getting things done. So you don't have time to sit down. So you are able to digest that meal completely. And in the evening, you have a warmer, lighter soup or something. And then you are preparing and ready to go to sleep. And you wake up effortlessly because you wake up slightly hungry in the morning. And that's something which is a more normal, ideal daily routine, I would say. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Supper, the supplemental soup-like meal in the evening so you're hungry in the morning. You mentioned caffeine. Um, you know, there's a Starbucks on every corner these days, if, if not a Starbucks, some other type of a coffee shop. People love their coffee. I've, I've got an article that, I'm, that we're writing called The Good and the Bad and the Ugly of Coffee coming out very, very soon, talking about ancient wisdom, modern science with all the coffee. All the, and I'm so curious to know what your take is with regard to coffee, with regard to coffee and circadian medicine, and with regard to coffee and your digestive system, because traditional cultures would have a cup of coffee after their meal as a sort of a, a after meal digestive. Tell me what you know about the whole coffee thing, which is huge. Well, and, and uh, there's enough research to back the, that, that if people are eating something warm, bitter drink, first thing in the morning, which is the kapha time of the day, that's not a bad drink to consume at that time. Okay, so from from an Ayurvedic perspective, six to ten in the morning is the kapha time. Uh, the opposite qualities that balance kapha is something warm and bitter and astringent. So coffee is a gentle diuretic. It purges uh, a lot of fluid accumulation, puffiness. It's a bitter and it's it's probably the only good potent antioxidant in a standard American diet, I would say. So I think having a warm cup of coffee in the morning is not a bad idea, but having it in the vata time later in the day and everything is going to really disrupt everything uh, right along with your meal is also not a good idea because it actually suppresses and masks the symptom whether you have overeaten certain foods or not because one of the common symptoms now, now we see called as postprandial narcosis when people are eating a little bit more than what they should be they feel a little bit sleepy and sluggish and coffee after meals kind of suppresses that thing. So they are not able to actually feel whether their blood sugar is spiking up and they, are, they have eaten a little bit more than what they should be eating. And that's the reason why I, I'm not a big fan of having coffee right after the meals. But first thing in the morning, I think I think it's, a, it's not a bad idea. It's a very ancient drink. It's a very ancient drink in all the ancient cultures. They have used a variety of different beverages which do contain caffeine, like green tea, black tea, or regular black coffee. Uh, it's not a bad thing for the morning drink, but not throughout the day. So and the sugar I, ones. Every I time you it. add milk and sugar, that is when it becomes impure drink, I would say. Yeah, no, I love your take on that, that when you drink the coffee in the afternoon, you're giving yourself energy that you don't really have. So you're, so you think you have energy, but the reality is from either overeating or eating the bad food that you ate in the middle of the day or snacking, you're actually giving, normally you would feel sleep, sleepy and lethargic from a bad meal. You mask that with some cup of coffee. But my question is, is coffee by itself a digestive stimulant or a digestive suppressant? It suppresses uh, your appetite. It suppresses your appetite. It suppresses your agni. And it is a drying quality to it. So it actually dries out your enzymatic secretions and things. And it creates unwanted pitta. So the sharp quality of pitta increases. And the good oily quality of pitta actually dries out. So it kind of increases pitta, but it weakens agni. So it's, it's high heat and low agni kind of an imbalance that we see quite a bit now, which creates a lot of inflammatory challenges. Then why is it, if it, if it has this acidic effect, which did therefore make, most people say, wait a minute, coffee is acidic, so therefore it helped me increase my acid, therefore increase my, my digestive strength. How can it be both acidic and also not good for your digestive fire at the same time? Pitta, pitta is a combination of fire and water. So something has to increase fire and water both and pitta is slightly oily. So anything which is heating and drying may not really increase pitta. So caffeine is heating and drying. So it kind of dries out the enzymatic secretions and the oily quality of the digestive juice, what we call it as agni. 
So I think it increases just sharp quality of pitta, but doesn't increase the complete totality of the pitta, which is good for digestion. So there's a solution to that, and people call it bulletproof coffee. Bulletproof coffee, yeah. They blend in their coconut oil, their MCT oil, or their ghee. What if we do that? Does that mitigate that? It does mitigate to a certain extent. It does so mitigate to a certain extent. A cup of that coffee after your lunch would be okay, according to Dr. Suhas, or? Well, as I said, that accord uh, right after lunch, it's not a good idea to, to have stimulation. that just for yeah. the stimulation purpose. But during the other time of the day, if you're doing in the morning or something, I think that would minimize the unwanted side effects of caffeine by adding yes. some coconut oil or some ghee or butter to the coffee. Makes good sense. So in, in the old days, it was, you know, putting cream in your coffee, which also is a fat, which would neutralize it to some extent as well. Although... There's issues with modern dairy for yeah. sure. In the morning though, we know the studies show that when people eat a big breakfast and a big lunch versus a big lunch and a big supper, the people eat the same number of calories. People eat the lunch and the supper gain more weight than people eat a breakfast and a lunch. So it's about when you eat the food. But having the cup of coffee um, when with breakfast, why is that okay for your digestion from a, just an Agni perspective when it's not so okay, I get it for the afternoon because it's vata time of day, you're amping up your vata in the vata time of day. You want to calm your vata down. So that makes perfect sense. Brilliant. I love your, your, your discussion about using coffee in the kapha time of day, which makes more sense. But from the digestive perspective, why is it okay then? Of course, you know, not including the ghee or the olive oil or the oil in your coffee. Well, I still consider it as a glorified drug. So there's no right way to do a wrong thing. So anytime you want to do something just to mask something, it's not a good idea. But around right. that time, you can get away with this because the calorie intake at breakfast is going to be a little bit less compared to lunch as such. So I think the body is waking up after a long fasting thing at that time. So mm -hmm. you, have, you have not eaten any food for a long time and you're eating a smaller breakfast. So if you drink something caffeine, it's not really going to interfere a whole lot with your digestion compared to a later part in the day as such. Yeah, and another, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And another important point which I actually mentioned in the book is about when, when you wake up in the morning, one of the best way to reset the circadian rhythm, especially for digestion, is to get going with a brisk workout in the kapha time in the, of the day. Because if you if you are doing the right kind of brisk workout, even if it's for 20, 30 minutes early in the morning, and that kind of sheds all the heaviness that is accumulated in the system for seven, eight, nine hours of sleeping. And then it makes you gently hungry for breakfast, lunch, and dinner at a proper time. So you need to start your day with a vigorous workout. And that vigorous workout will actually reset all your digestive timings properly. But if you wake up and then you suddenly, in order to break the fast, if you have a big breakfast, it's going to kind of disrupt many of these digestive processes. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I went to Russia years ago in the, in the early 1990s and met with their, their physical culture of sports when it was USSR. And they told me they do all their physical strength training in the morning. Yeah, and then yeah. I, when I wrote my book, Body, Mind, and Sport, was, there was all kinds of science showing the muscles are stronger in the middle, in the morning. They do, you know, the muscles are more resilient. 75% of people exercise on a regular basis do it first thing in the morning. So you're absolutely right that that is the, the best time for us to, you and know, more, ditches more. and plow fields when before it gets too hot, that's when we should do our exercise. Yeah, go ahead. And more importantly, uh, the latest study shows that those people who do the workout before breakfast are more likely to continue to lose weight and maintain weight more easily than doing a workout any other time of the day. Secondly, yeah. it actually prevents unwanted sports injuries if you're doing the workout in the morning because it sheds the heaviness and the muscular strength is stronger. So the flip switch that the science is talking about how to use oxygen and how to convert uh, the sugar for, for generating fuel uh, is more easily working at that time of the day than any other time later in the day itself. So I think... Uh, go ahead. We also know, which is really interesting, I want to build on this thought, that this is that... We know that when that the, at nighttime the liver produces cortisol to or the adrenals produce cortisol to get ready for the day, and then the liver oftentimes matches that cortisol with sugar 
through gluconeogenesis to put sugar into the blood. And the biggest issue with sort of the epidemic of prediabetes we have on this planet is increased or high fasting morning blood sugars. So the very best way for us to get rid of that excess morning blood sugar is to use that sugar, which is spilling over into your blood. And for some reason, maybe you know the answer to this, and I have not been able to dig it up in the science, is why does the liver overshoot the runway and produce high blood sugars in the morning, which is the cause or the, the beginning of prediabetes and type 2 diabetes? It's not a pancreatic issue. It's a liver issue. Metformin, the drug for type 2 diabetes, is okay. a liver drug. So, so do you know, and maybe I don't know if you know the answer, but I'd love to hear your comment on why we have high blood sugars in the morning called that dawn phenomena. Mm-hmm. And could exercise in the morning be a solution to that? Absolutely. And that is exactly what I'm proposing in my book also, because not only that the blood sugar spike up, but it spikes up because to offset the cortisol spiking up in the morning also. So as the melatonin is is peaking down around 7.30 a.m. in the morning, the melatonin secretion kind of stops and wanes off completely. That's when the cortisol spikes up. And when that cortisol is spiking up, that is there to offset the blood sugar spiking up at times. So if you do the physical movement and vigorous exercise at that time, it actually takes care of that spiked up cortisol at that time, as well as uh, the spiking up of the blood sugar. And you are able to utilize it for generating more energy. And you start feeling bright and energetic in the morning itself. And then so- more importantly, and more importantly, uh, the lighter breakfast that you are eating at that time, uh, if you if you are eating, uh, doing the workout before the breakfast, your ability to digest is more easily and be hungry at the lunchtime happens more e- easily because it actually resets that blood sugar mechanism so that it again slowly spikes up at the right time during the lunchtime. But if you don't do the workout and you eat a bre- big breakfast, then you are more likely not to be hungry at lunchtime. Yeah, you keep amping up the blood sugar. Although there are some science that show that if you eat a big breakfast, that increases the insulin, and then the insulin will drive the blood sugar back down, which is one question. I love talking to you because it's rare that I can talk to someone with such who has so many years, not that you're an old guy, we're both old guys, but but years of experience and so much wisdom. So I'm I apologize for hammering you with these detailed questions, but my audience is very well educated because I've Absolutely. talked a lot of the basics. So I want to really give them some really depth, informa- depth of information. So I have a lot of my patients check their own blood sugar in the morning as a way of to die being a blood sugar detective. And what they find is very common, there's science behind it. When you exercise, it increases the amount of blood sugar. Like the body goes, okay, we're moving. We need to feed the muscles with more sugar. So we need to get more sugar into the blood. So people find that after their exercise, their blood sugar levels go up, which is confusing to me because you would think that that would use up the blood sugar, but the body just like has this endless reserve. It keeps shoveling it in. Now, when you eat a meal in the morning, and maybe the thing is to have you know, have the exercise and then the meal right after because the insulin then after the meal would then lower possibly both levels of blood sugar. Maybe I answered my own question, um, but I'm curious to, to, to hear what you know about this because these are things that I see clinically all the time that are, that are frustrating, with pe- particularly people with those chronic high morning blood, ple- blood sugars. I think the key here is uh, the reason why we call it as breakfast because you have to break the fast of 12 to 13 hours of fasting from the night before. So if you have not eaten anything after seven o'clock in the evening, then that spiking of gentle blood sugar in the morning with the workout actually drops it and levels it off with a gentle warm meal that you will have as a breakfast right after the workout. And within 30 minutes of having a steel cut oatmeal after a workout, I think your blood sugar levels up and then it, it stays steady till your lunchtime, and you will actually see that phenomenon quite often. But if people are eating a little bit late after seven o'clock in the evening, then there is much more blood sugar variation that we see in the morning. Hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, I'm gonna ask you one more question about coffee. I'm never gonna mention it again for the rest of the interview, okay? Um, the well, rajasic, tamasic nature of some of these stimulating beverages. Obviously we know Ayurvedically coffee is a very stimulating, we call rajasic beverage. Yeah. Um, 
how do we weigh that in? Our modern culture, everybody drinks coffee. Is sattva a thing of the past? How do we reconcile the, the, the rajasic nature of coffee when we're trying all to be more sattvic in a very non-sattvic world? Well, I think, I think uh, every food has certain qualities, okay? And that qualities, uh, you have to understand the qualities and use it at the right time in the right place. So it's a qualitative world. Every food has some good and bad qualities itself, including coffee. So I think you're right. Coffee is a rajasic drink. It is it is going to increase your drive. It is going to increase your activity, and it's going to make you get going much more easily. And if you need that, I think it's it's not a bad beverage to have. But depend upon who is drinking it. If at all you have a, a, a already pretty ungrounded, thin, wiry vata person drinking it, then it will have more rajasic quality and it will actually increase that activity and restlessness in the mind and make them more shaky and jittery. If at all a pitta person is doing it, then the heating and the sharp quality of that is going to actually create that that hyperacidity or that acidic tendency or inflammation as we talked about. And if for a kapha person, it will actually neutralize the dull, heavy qualities that kapha person would have. And that might be a great drink for them to have in the morning as such. So every food has certain qualities and it has its effect on the mind itself. So depend upon the kind of body type you have and the mind you have, that food will, will actually increase certain qualities or uh, diffuse certain negative qualities, uh, what that food is doing to you. Beautiful. You mentioned earlier um, that the word breakfast means to, to fast, and we should have about 13 hours from, from supper till breakfast, which is a, one of the classic ways of doing some type of intermittent fasting, a great way to reset blood sugar, a great way to reset fat metabolism. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about the, 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 the circadian understanding of fasting who should fast when should they fast what's your take on fasting i think 13 hour fasting every evening anybody can fast for all the body type as such um, there are people who eat um, a very early supper five six seven o'clock and then they are a little bit hungry before they go to sleep and they can have a little bit of a warming beverage maybe uh, an almond milk with some turmeric they can make a golden milk of that uh, they can have that but if at all you are able to fast uh, there are three things which are very important which happens at that time number one is you are able to fall asleep and stay asleep if at all your body is not uh, dealing with uh, heavy food into your body itself many activities whether it's immune function uh, cholesterol synthesis all of those things are happening exactly like a clockwork in the night but if at all you are eating late and you are sleeping late at that time it's going to disrupt many of those functions and then you're going to wake up feeling more dull and heavy and not having desire to even wake up naturally without the help of alarm clock or feeling light enough to go for a run or do some physical workout or even hungry for uh, a light warm breakfast in the morning. So I think fasting is a good idea for all the three body types, I would say. Only vata type, they sometimes feel as if it's too early for them before they go to sleep. They're not able to sleep properly and I recommend them to have a cup of warm milk as such. But for a pitta person, for a kapha person, I think it's one of the best habits that they can develop. Those people who eat early live longer. And there's a lot of research to validate that, actually. So I think you need to slowly train yourselves to do that and observe that 12, 13, 14 hours of fasting every night, ideally. And that's the best way to get rid of ama because the digestion shuts down. And the body is able to actually uh, use that energy and rest to the stomach to uh, regulate whatever the digestive impurities are in the system. And when the first thing in the morning, actually, when you wake up and we talk about uh, the bowel movements, they are three times much more stronger uh, between 6, 7, 8 a.m. in the morning. And that is the time when you can effectively get rid of a lot of impurities, if at all the body is in sync with the internal body clock itself. So there are there are these so many numerous functions, especially in the sleep itself from 10 in the night till 6 in the in the morning. There are so many physiological functioning that is going on in the body. And I think eating light in the night is going to support all of those functions. There's so much, you know, that we've watched the paleo diet come and yeah. hasn't gone yet. It's sort of being morphed into a, 
a more aggressive <clears throat> ketogenic diet where people are eating 70 to 80% fat going into ketosis um, as a way to reset fat burning. I think you both, both of us agree that our Western diet is overwhelmingly high in sugar yeah. and therefore we burn sugar as our primary fuel and not enough fat. We all have become lousy fat burners. And one of the ways to reset fat burning, like you said, is, you know, is to, uh, to fast for 13 hours of your day. But what do you think about this idea of, you know, moving towards a low carb? Some of the more intelligent people talk about having a low protein and high fat diet as a way to support ketogenesis, as a way to reset fat burning, um, and something that, that uh, they're talking about as a new sort of healthy way of eating. What do you think about that? Well, I think in the in the name of um, low carb, high protein diet, people are eating very impure foods, and that is creating a lot of diseases and imbalances as such. Even though uh, the short term goal is lightening up by a few pounds, but ultimately the goal is to feel healthy, energetic, vibrant, and be disease free. And we don't want to embark on any food or dietary plan which might create even more diseases and imbalances as such. So I think I think the general routine is, uh, as you said, that uh, we need to have a little bit of a more balanced meal and understand that the carbs that we are eating are not refined starches and are not loaded with sugar as such, but they are a little bit what we call it as slow carbs, complex carbohydrates eaten in the right amount at the right time with a proper blend of the protein that you are probably more liking whether it's a plant-based diet or a vegetarian protein or animal protein. But again, heavy duty of animal protein at times is going to disrupt your, your process of digestion and it's loaded with a lot of impurities, which is going to create. And it has an impact on your mind as well. It makes your mind very driven, very tamasic as well. So every food has certain qualities. And I think plant-based diet has much more sattvic quality in its, in its nature, which actually makes your mind uh, naturally stress-free. And it doesn't make you overly driven or overly toxic or impure thoughts and self-destructive thoughts and ideas because of food, which is very impure and having a tamasic qualities uh, into the diet itself. So just to just to go back to what you were saying is, yes, means different body types and the state of their digestion and agni has to be respected. So you have to be self-referral enough to understand that how much you are eating and what you're eating. And sometimes I often say that food is kind of overrated. Is that right? We have made it so complicated for food for even common people to understand. Means there are three things that we need to survive. One is air, that is free of charge, good clean air. Second is water. And the third and the least important is food. So if you are able to breathe properly and live in a clean air atmosphere, if you drink clean water, plenty of that throughout the day and eat small meals, uh, you will be able to survive longer, healthier and happier. We have made it so complicated and so difficult for people to understand that in the name of all the different food group and everything, people end up in eating more so than what they want. So we are unfortunately having a whole country which is overfed and undernourished in the name of diets. Hmm. Yeah, very wise, sound advice. When we go back to a circadian understanding of this, we we know, and I'm curious what you think about the idea that you know we all are seasonal eaters. I've written a book about seasonal eating and and how in the fall, when everything is being harvested, we have an abundance of carbohydrates and sugars and starches, nuts and seeds and grains are being harvested. We even have an enzyme called amylase, which increases yeah. in your body and my body in the fall and decreases in the spring and the summer when the starches are no longer available. So we have this sort of high carb diet at the end of the summer to store protein and fat and insulate for the winter and reserve. But come spring, you know, most traditional cultures were, you know, lucky to stay alive through the famine. After the feasts of fall, we have the famine of late spring, which forces the body into a naturally kind of low fat, natural ketogenic diet. So traditional cultures sort of did many spiritual religious practices or fasting in the spring. Talk to me about the idea of fasting from a, from a seasonal perspective, which sort of did naturally happen in the springtime, or at least you're more uh, 
low, uh, you're more definitely low protein and, and low carb and, and in a sense uh, on a very austere diet that forced our body to burn our own fat. What do you think about springtime fasting in the kapha season? This is this is brilliant, John. I'm I'm so impressed because I think I think one of the thing that which I highlighted in my book is that whether we like it or not, um, we have these rhythms which are circadian rhythms, which we have um, rhythms which are related with lunar rhythms, which is moon circling around our Earth. We have Earth circling around Sun, and so the seasons are created because of our movement of Earth around Sun. So there are known seasons that happen. We are, every species on earth is affected by the changes of seasons. The food is grown differently. Uh, the crops are cultivated differently. The festivals are happening because to celebrate those. And with all those understanding, we have been civilizations that have lived this way to really understand and synchronize their internal rhythms with the changing rhythms of time, seasons, seasons of life, and what is happening with the waxing and waning of sunlight and different seasons in winter and summer as such. So we need to definitely synchronize our eating patterns with that. To answer your question, fasting is one of the most underutilized healing modality that we have. And all the ancient cultures, religious as well as spiritual cultures, have actually used fasting to bring it close to your own self. So it's a very spiritual uh, practice to develop the willpower. But more importantly, doing fasting at the right time is wonderful. And fasting in spring is very, very revered because it's a natural kapha aggravation from an Ayurvedic perspective. So that's the peak time where you accumulate a lot of kapha in the winter and that kapha is naturally aggravated. So if you do the fasting around springtime, it actually resets the body. The seasonal panchakarma that we talk about is totally based upon these timings and waxing and waning of the doshas at different times itself. Even the religious, like we, one of the festivals we have called Navratris. Navratris are the nine days of Mother Divine. And they fall twice a year, one in spring and one in fall. So those nine days are meant to be uh, having a lighter diet, meditating longer, being close to yourself, eating uh, very small portions of food and things. So it is all meant, every festival is absolutely in sync with what the circadian rhythms should be doing in the body itself. The food that is growing around that time is exactly what you need, what Mother Nature is providing you to eat at that time. So uh, when you shop locally, you are actually seeing what is in what is in season. That's what you should be eating at that time. But when you shop in supermarket, you probably have any food from any part of the world available to you around the year. So I think going back to that understanding that you should be actually uh, syncing everything that you do in terms of cleansing and fasting everything with the changing seasons itself and spring and fall. These are the best time to do panchakarma. And you have been doing these uh, Colorado cleanses for a long time. So the syncing of those times, even there are lunar constellations when you should begin those things. So there are certain things when moon is in certain constellation, this is exactly the best time to do, to do certain fastings. And within the 28 days of lunar cycle, there are certain days that they talk about, like Ekadashis, which is the 11th day of the lunar moon, where it's really optimized to do the fasting. And whether you do a monodiet fast, whether you do a 24-hour water fast, or whether you have a light, simple juice cleanse or something, which should not be ice cold, but something uh, nice and easy at room temperature. But I think all of those things is so effective and so healing. And, and uh, the research says that it actually regulates uh, uh, the genes expressing which are creating obesity, diabetes, or even cancer can be turned off by doing a structured fasting. I love that. And I wrote, just wrote an article about the Akasha day, the, uh, the 11th day of the lunar sun, which was a traditional lunar, uh, the 11th day of the new moon is a day when traditional cultures would do the fasting. Is, can you elaborate on that for me and, and what exactly is happening in, on the, in the lunar calendar, what nakshatra caused constellation the, the moon is in to make that fasting more appropriate? Or why did traditional people do it at that time? That's well, fascinating. I, 
Well, I think it's an interesting question because uh, whether we like it or not, sun and moon, these are the two luminaries as such. And so uh, sun is a representation of Agni and heat and Tejas and fire. And moon is the representation of Soma, Ojas, vitality, uh, healing, and the cooling essence of the physiology itself. So around Ekadashi is a junction point where you can reset your fire and your lunar principles together itself. Uh, there are there are certain uh, situations where it's not always that moon will be on a specific constellation on Ekadashi itself, but that day of fasting actually prepares you for for uh, the new moon or prepares you for the full moon, which is going to create some disruptions in the way the body is going to wax and wane. So there are uh, fluid related uh, situations that are happening where you're feeling a little bit puffy, swollen, bloated. There's almost like a virus scan that you are scheduling every 15 days that happens where you start getting rid of a lot of impurities that is accumulated in the system. So during those times, it's a good way to get rid of AMA and slowly keep the body ready for better spiritual experiences that happen around new moon or full moon. When you're walking around feeling dull, groggy, heavy, and congested, even if you meditate at the right day, at the right time, you do not get those spiritual experiences. You want your channels, srotas to open to get those experiences much more clearly. So you are actually preparing yourself when you enter into a phase of full moon or new moon to have that spiritual awakening coming to you much more easily. I have an idea for your next book. Absolutely. Which, you know, if you could write a book about all the Vedic holidays, which happen like every three days in India, there's always a holiday, right? And then tie that information to the circadian rhythms of nature, because I think they all come from that. Isn't it true? From harvest to, to, to planting but, to all that. And, and really help you. I really think this is such an important understanding that people understand but this is just like, okay, eat big lunch, go to bed early, which is the basics. Uh, eat seasonally, which is really important and all that. But there's something that you can take this to the most subtle aspects of our being. And that's what Ayurveda provides for us. It understood, studied in such a great detail, the subtlety of nature. And I don't know all the Vedic holidays like you did. You lived it. It's, your, it's in your blood. So I'm asking you. Write a book about that. I think people would love it because I think people are ready to hear the details, understand the subtlety of circadian science and the link to the Vedic culture, because I think the Vedic culture was a study of that. Um, so anyway, just an idea for your next I, book. I think, I think it's a great idea. And I think if you, if you look at, there are lots of parallels, whether you look at the Jewish holidays, they <laughs> right. perfectly sync with what the Vedic calendar is. So whichever the calendars are using, lunar calendars, all the festivals fall around the same time, whether you talk about Purim or whether you talk about Sabbath or whatever different festivals that you talk about, they are all related with, with the same circadian principles. And they were they were actually looking at those lunar calendars to keep their body in, in rhythm with that. Because every little thing, instead of looking at uh, a Western solar calendar, when you start looking at the, at the lunar calendar and when you look at even the, the surfing calendar as such, I would say, when the tide is going to be up and down, it's exactly the impact that your mind and body will be feeling during those times. So I think it's a it's a great idea to to allow ourselves to understand and I think what one of the simple advice that I give to many of my patients is to is to start looking at lunar calendar and start syncing those things much more easily with what you're doing in terms of food in terms of certain days of fasting in certain days of cleansing and observing certain things because they are all good to spiritually uplift you and make your mind because their lunar mind is uh, Chandrama Manasojata means moon is the significator of the mind from Vedic astrology, from every perspective that we talk about. So I think every effect that you will have on your mind that you, you will sync with looking at the seasons, I think that's one of the best tools for your own health and well-being. And anything that will make you connected with your own self, that you doing something for yourself, whether you do fasting, whether yeah. you do uh, having a light dinner for yourself, or whether you do brisk, vigorous exercise for yourself in the morning, being self-referral in tune with just looking at your own blood sugar, these are all participation in your own health. And I think this mm. is the missing link. One of the one of the reasons for the writing the book was we are becoming so disconnected 
that we are not even sensing some basic rhythms, whether we are thirsty or hungry or whether we feel sleepy at the right time. Uh, every every uh, bodily rhythm is being overtaken by everything else that you're doing. You're watching late night television and then you forget that you're sleepy. You're busy at work and gobbling your lunch in front of your computer. Then you are not even aware that how hungry you are and what is the food you should be eating at that time. So that disconnection is the crux of the issue. And the more and more you can encourage people to participate in their own health and well-being, I think that's the, that's the solution for many of the challenges that we face now. Yeah, I find I always would tell people that, you know, how do you feel at the end of your day? Do you feel tired, exhausted, debilitated, depleted? Are you craving foods, caffeine, stimulants throughout the day to get through the day? You know, this is not natural. There's no animal species in nature that struggles through, to get through the day and is exhausted at the end of their day. It just doesn't exist in nature. Yet we, you know, are crashing and burning through the day, you know, cra- you know exhausted and recovering on the weekends. It's, a, it's an insane way of life. And I think women in particular, who, who I feel like in an evolutionary sense were built stronger, more resilient to give birth, to, to raise their children. But in today's day and age, women are asked to you know, carry the baby, deliver the baby, nurse the baby, feed the baby, take them to school, cook, you know, have a job on top of that. These superhumans, women, are being asked to do so much. Plus, they have you know, a really deep connection to the lunar cycle, which can easily get thrown out of whack because of all that yeah. stress. And I, so I think that, that you know, men, I don't know, they, they die early anyway. And you know, it's like in nature, you look at what men do versus what women do. I mean, men don't have play, play a, a very big role, you know, where women really are, 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 are and in our culture, it's so out of whack what we ask women to do. And I think that, that your book and, and this discussion about circadian medicine and hopefully men understanding that, that they have to take on some of that responsibility and take the stress. So the women, the hub, the, I call the women the ocean, that this, the son of the family, everything revolves around them. And if that, and if the women are out of balance and out of their circadian rhythm, how are, are the planets, the children, the, the family, starting to spin around a, a, you know, a sun, the center, which is out of balance. So I think it's so important that, that, that women hear loud and clear, or the culture hears loud and clear, that, that, we, that women have been asked to do way more, where I really feel like where, where um, in some way, I don't know, you know what I'm trying to say, right? Just- Absolutely, Miss. I, I say that they, they cradle civilization and they yeah. breastfeed humanity. And so yeah. I think it's such an important role. And they are in tune with the lunar cycles much more easily than men. So their, their, their lunar clock is ticking and they are aware of what is happening in their body much more so than men itself. And so one of the challenges, right? They should make more decisions about the planet and politics yeah. and, and because they come from their heart, because they're connected to the, the rhythms of nature more than men who are out there want to go like, you know, hunt and, you know, go out and hunt and, they didn't even do the gathering. I mean, it's, it's sort of funny to me that, that when you look at you know the hunter-gatherers, the men would go out and hunt. They come back generally empty-handed. When you look at the hunt, the Hadza tribe, the, did you hear the study? I thought that was really funny. Yeah, absolutely. The Hadza tribe men have a different microbiome than the Hadza tribe women. The women who stay and hunt and gather, they have microbes in their gut for digesting vegetables and tubers. And the men who go do the hunt and gather to this day, this is modern hunter-gatherers, they had a completely different set of bugs for meat. So the men would wake up every morning, go on their hunting party, kill something, we don't know what they killed, eat it, get a microbiome for eating more animal protein, and come back and have the dinner with the family who were eating nuts and seeds and grains and tubers who had a completely different microbiome. I just thought that was really interesting. Here we go again, the men out there doing their little man cave thing and not really bringing it back to the family. And still, even with the, hunter, with the women who have a different microbiome, they're still living longer. 
So that's that's true. And there's an interesting point that I want to bring. I practice in the Bay Area and, and the fertility clock gets affected when women are functioning yes. in, in, in men's world and they are uh, super competitive. Many of these women, they are working shoulder to shoulder with men and they start thinking, behaving, acting like men and their fertility clocks gets disrupted and they have lots of challenges conceiving and uh, having uh, easy pregnancies because of that at times. Another interesting point that I would like to bring up and I mentioned that in my book is, is something called a social jet lag. And this is a big problem right, right now where People more or less behave themselves Monday to Friday. They wake up and they are trying to do everything properly. But come Friday night, they want to relax and they want to party late in the night and they eat late. They, they probably wake up around 10, 11 on Saturday morning. And then since they wake up in the morning, they're having late lunch. Since they had late lunch, they're going to have late dinner. And again, the same story on Sunday. And then Monday morning, they're back to work. So it's almost you are taking a cross-country flight every weekend and you're waking up in a different time zone every weekend. And it takes at least three or four days for you to reset though that kind of a jet lag that you, uh, that you imposed on yourself. And by the time you regulate your bowel movement, digestion, everything, it's Thursday. And then the next day is Friday itself and you disrupt it one more time. So most of the country is doing this, what we call it as social jet lag, which is really disrupting all the circadian clock in the body. Mm. Wow, that is so brilliant. I, I, you, you and I both hear all the time that my patients, they, they have a reasonably good routine on the weekend and, or during the week and on the weekend, everything just falls apart. There was a study done where they took mice and they chopped their circadian clock and they watched the mice all of a sudden started eating incessantly, eating at daytime and, uh, you know, sleeping at night. They're supposed to do the opposite. And then they took a picture of their bugs in their gut and they quickly changed to diabetic and obese mice. Their microbes were like that. They took a group of people and they shipped them to Israel in a plane, shipped them right back. They came back. They took a picture of the bugs of the humans and they looked identical to the mice who, who lost their circadian clock, obese and diabetic. They took the bugs out of the healthy humans who just came back from Israel, have now these altered microbes in their gut. And they took those bugs and they stuck them into healthy mice. And in quick, short order, those mice, the healthy mice with a circadian clock intact, started eating incessantly. They were sleeping at night and eating during the day, completely altering their circadian clock. So what you're saying is that the, that the, the point, I think, of this whole discussion is that this circadian clock and our microbes they're tuned into the most subtle aspects of nature. And we are so grossly ignoring even, this, even the, the huge cycles of nature, light, dark, let alone the subtleties. So we have a long way to go. And you I and think I. the fact, the fact is that that, that microbiome is, is about 80, 90% of the DNA that we have. It's not our body. It's actually their body. If we make their life difficult, they will make our life very difficult. And there's a Vedic expression which says, is it your body uh, or their body? Are you living in their body or they are living in your body as such? And so what it is actually doing is it is, it is confusing them by all these activities, by late night activities. You are staying up late in the night. Uh, that confuses the gut microbiome, the uh, every cross-country flight that you take, the traveling schedule and the eating variation that you have, it confuses the gut microbiome, which is the first step towards a variety of different imbalances that we talk about. One of very interesting experiment that I mentioned in my book was they took a bunch of people uh, for camping in Colorado and they made them uh, stay out uh, in the nature without any exposure to televisions or computers or cell phones for seven days. And they noticed that those people who were out living in the nature and camping were falling asleep two hours before than the normal routine. And they were waking up at least one or two hours before they usually wake up in the morning very easily and effortlessly. So with just seven days of outdoor camping, reset their melatonin release two hours earlier, and they were able to fall asleep and stay asleep. And right at the crack of the dawn, they were able to wake up without any alarm clock uh, in the system itself. So I think yeah. the artificial light, the blue light that you are exposing yourself in the night before you go to sleep, everyone is, uh, in, in is that, yeah. In that same study, 
they did a follow-up study. It was done right here in Colorado, right here in That's Boulder. correct, yeah, yeah. They did a follow-up study and they had people go for camping for just a weekend yeah. and they reset their melatonin you know, cycle by 78% just with one weekend. So you're absolutely right. You know, I, I call it a, a no artificial light weekend. People can go and just don't turn on the lights for the weekend, turn off the Wi-Fi for the weekend and get re, in, re, reset up and resynced with the circadian cycles, which leads me to my next question and my final discussion I wanna to talk to, we're running out of time here, is melatonin. Melatonin is something that I've written a ton about, done a ton of research on. Um, I'm curious to know, what your take is on how other than the circadian, how other, other ways, strategies, you, we can reset our, our melatonin cycles. Because clearly in America, and, and the reason why they did that, they, they took healthy people from Boulder and they took regular, the healthiest place in the world, Boulder is supposed to be. And they all had a circadian imbalance. They were surging melatonin at 10.30 in the morning, which should be no melatonin. Remember, melatonin puts you to sleep at night. You should have none during the day. And healthy people were surging melatonin in the middle of the day, going for a cup of coffee to get them up and so they wouldn't fall asleep at 10.30. So tell me, talk to me about melatonin. Well, as I said, that uh, it, is the, it is the sun and moon from, from a Vedic perspective, I would say serotonin and melatonin. So something that is stimulating and something which is more calming and relaxing as such. Ideally, the surge that should happen is around 9, 9.30, 10 o'clock in the night, and it should fade off automatically around 7, 7.30 in the, in the morning. And so if you're asleep and you're preparing your ideal evening routine itself, you will actually regulate your melatonin clock itself. But since we talk about pineal gland, which is responsible for the secretions of melatonin, is the third eye. That is what we talk about from a Vedic perspective. And that is something, whether you do alternate nostril breathing, whether you do pranayama, whether you even do alternate use of your body, is actually very good in regulating those functions and those secretions itself. So I think we, we have we have an interesting situation here, whether you want to regulate your things and uh, what we know from what we are doing with the artificial light and the blue light itself, it is interfering because every time your eyes are exposed to uh, unnatural lighting in any shape, way or form, it is going to disrupt the melatonin clock. And so I think uh, one of the things that even people are going to sleep at a proper time, uh, they have lots of dim lighting uh, in the bedroom. And I often tell them to cover and put a little bit stickers on every little light in their bedroom so that there's absolutely no light where you should feel that you are waking up in the middle of the night just because of that itself. So I think the main reason why people have that disruption is because of any exposure to light at unwanted time. The first thing people do when they wake up in the morning is to check their cell phone. The last thing that they do before they go to sleep is to check their cell phones. And whichever way you look at it, even, even a thought-related process, which is making you feel anxious or stressed or think about your work routine and everything is going to disrupt the secretions of melatonin as such. Because it's not just the hormone related with, um, with uh, helping you sleep. It's also reducing, preventing inflammation. And anything which is going to make you feel a little bit more active and worried mm -hmm. and tense and rigid, it's going to interfere your melatonin secretions and the melatonin clock itself. So yeah. I think it's an important hormone. And I saw your recent article, whether you want to use something in a quick burst or you want to have something slow release. Anything that we support our body to carry out any function, I'm in big favor of that. So. I think understanding these principles, I'm happy that modern medicine is finally waking up and validating this very ancient Ayurvedic principles because uh, we used to even ignore sleep, that we used to think that sleep is just a waste of time and there's no real function for you to even sleep. And we are suddenly realizing you can you can lose weight when you're sleeping. It's one of the most potent anti-inflammatory activity that you will ever do. It regulates your immune function and so forth and so on. So I think I think understanding every reason logic why body does certain things at certain times and thinking what you do around that time is the real wisdom and i think we cannot continually dominate and dictate and disrupt uh, let our schedules be disrupted with what we are doing and let our body's clock be disrupted the even 
I think Ayurveda is the only science which has even talked about the dosha times and the timings, how how the different things are happening, the different seasons of nature that is happening. And we're talking about this for thousands of years where civilizations have lived this way, thought this way, and have exposed themselves to all of these things with proper activities, what you should be doing. So I think I think going back to learning something simple about what your body is doing and allowing yourself and participating in your own health and sync your activities. And the three most important activities that I distilled in the book was sleep, exercise, and your food. So your food intake has to be at a proper time, a lighter breakfast, a good decent lunch, and a lighter dinner. You should do brisk workout first thing in the morning and whatever do other time of the day is an added bonus. Make sure that you're asleep at a proper time and you wake up at a proper time and slowly it will start disrupting uh, recorrecting many of these things so desynchronization is what the current epidemic is and as we synchronize our activities with our bodily rhythms that's the solution i would say well i think it couldn't be said any better i want to thank you dr suhas for for joining me i think that when you study ayurveda as you have uh, as I have, you can't go anywhere else but to understand the depths of circadian science. And like you said so beautifully, Ayurveda is the only science that really dissected it, studied it in an intense way. And, and we are so far ahead of what the science is beginning to understand that I really feel like Ayurveda is the roadmap to the future of our good health. And I couldn't, I can't thank you enough for for writing the book. I think the more we can bring this topic up from a traditional time-tested ancient wisdom perspective tied to the modern science, I think we can help a lot of people. And I wanna thank you for joining me. Remember Dr. Uh, Suhas's book, Change Your Schedule, Change Your Life is out. Please get a copy of that. It's a great book, it's a great read, and it's one to help us all of us get reconnected to the rhythms of nature and go downstream in our life versus plowing upstream as many of us do. Thank you again, Dr. Suhas, for joining me. Very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.